Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artist, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to The Bright Side with Technicia. I am your host, Technicia, where this show deals with all walks of life, from authors to entrepreneurs, holistic healers, you name it. I probably have had them on the show, and if I have not, they will be, but I'm glad you're tuning in. Today is a great day, so happy Wednesday, everyone. Happy Millionaire Minded. Today is September 20th, 2017, and I have with me a special guest who has gone from lawyer to turned peacemaker. His calling is to serve humanity, and he executes his calling at many levels. His work carries him into many dark places. Using pragmatic and practical skills of peace, he helps people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts. He is an award-winning author of three books, a teacher, speaker, and trainer. His fourth book, which we will be discussing, The Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 96 or Less, was, um, is soon to be released of this month. Um, has already been released, of course. Um, here with me, Enor. Doug, thank you for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate you for taking out the time. Hey, Technicia, thanks for having me. We're going to have a great conversation. Oh, yes. Oh, so I wasn't too informed. Is your book already out? Has it hit it's the out. shelf? It's was, it was re- Yeah, it was out last week. So uh, awesome. it's, it's out there. Anybody can get it now. Oh, awesome. And I have the pleasure of having already a copy in my hand, so I'm very um, honored to have that, but let's talk a little bit. Um, excuse me. Let's talk a little bit. You went from a lawyer to a peacemaker. So, what changed? What made you turn over a new leaf? Well, it was a it was a process. Um, I was a trial lawyer for 22 years, and in my mid 30s, I took up the martial arts. Ultimately, became a second degree black belt in a very vicious northern Chinese form of Kung Fu. And after my teacher awarded me my second degree, he called me in and said, you're done here. You're too arrogant. You are dangerous. And uh, you're going to hurt somebody, including yourself. So no more martial arts for you from me until you master Tai Chi. So go learn Tai Chi. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but that was a death sentence because you never really master Tai Chi. But anyways, I did what he said, and I found a Tai Chi master and began to study this very ancient form of martial arts, which, as it turns out, is the oldest of all martial arts and is also the most brutal of all martial arts. I mean, we see people in documentaries doing very slow, graceful movements, but every single one of those moves is a killing blow uh, when you when you speed it up and, and add power. So the interesting thing about Tai Chi is that it has two paradoxes that I that confused me. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. So soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Did not compute. Uh, very confusing. How can you be soft to be oh how how does this how can you to be strong you have to be tough and to be powerful you have to be powerful you know muscle and force. Well, it turns out that Tai Chi has hit that these paradoxes hit upon an essential truth of life. Um, anyways, eventually I figured it out. And one day I was in a courtroom trying a case and cross-examining somebody, and thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And after that trial, I had a planned vacation on a, on a river trip, and so I spent the next 10 days powering through big rapids in my raft with friends, and, um, and I had the boat all to myself, so I was able to spend all day long just floating down the river and thinking about stuff. And at the end, I decided that maybe being a trial lawyer wasn't my calling anymore. So when I came back and was driving down out of the mountains uh, to my office, I live in the central Sierra Nevada 
uh, south of Yosemite. Um, I heard a public service announcement on our public radio station for a new master's degree program in peacemaking and conflict studies, and it caught my attention. So I checked it out and decided to enroll. And so I became a full-time master's student, and at that time a full-time trial lawyer and a three-quarters time law professor. And my mentors in that program over the next two and a half to three years completely changed the way that I looked at the world. And I began to see the limitations of the law. The, the legal system, our legal system is wonderful at certain kinds of conflicts and resolving certain kinds of disputes and making decisions about how things should go. But there are many, 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 many human conflicts that have no business being in the legal system. And all the legal system does is make things worse for people, not better. So, And I started seeing this and learning that there are other ways of resolving conflict other than by trial, which was a huge awakening moment for me. So ultimately, I left my practice in 2000. I was 50 years old. I just got up and walked out, gave a week's notice, left a ton of money on the table, uh, left a very successful financially and professionally successful practice and became a peacemaker. And that's how it all happened. Uh, and... I have to say that in the last 17 years, I have helped more. I help more people in a month than I helped in four or five years as a trial lawyer. So my ability to serve, the capacity to serve, has increased dramatically. I don't make as much money as I used to make, but my satisfaction level is out of sight. And especially the opportunity to work in the prisons with the Prison of Peace Project that I co-founded with my colleague has been particularly profound. So it's just, it's an amazing, it's been an amazing journey, and I can hardly wait to see what comes next. Oh, well, I'm very excited, Doug, for your amazing journey. Now, we speak of this peacemaking. What what shall we do? Because we're in troubling times. We have a president. Yes, we are. We have a president and office who portrays the violent critique. We have war going on amongst us that we cannot see, but we hear on the news. We, right. What, how can we control ourselves amongst all this violence? Because you speak of peace, but not everyone is in that same state of mind. Well, so the for me, peace starts with each of us in relationship to each other. The the in the ancient times, it was called shalom, right relationships with others. And we can the difficulty that we've had in the past about having these right relationships or this idea of shalom is that we didn't have the skill sets or the knowledge about how our brains function uh, and understanding the true nature of emotions and the limitations of rationality. But today we do have that knowledge. And the skill sets that I've developed are based on studies by neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman at UCLA that shows us exactly how our brains respond when they're emotional and what we can do to calm them down. So when we look at the turbulence and the anger that exists in our culture today, we can't look to our political leaders or even our faith communities, really, to, to calm things down because they don't – one, they're not motivated, and two, they don't have the skill set. Their motivation is to tribalize and polarize people because that way they stay in power. If we want to live calm lives and have peace around us – and that doesn't mean, by the way, that there's an absence of conflict. It just means that the way we respond to the conflicts is is in a in a more calm way. If we want that for ourselves, then we have to do it ourselves. And it, and it turns out there are three simple steps that anybody can learn that will allow them to de-escalate any angry person, whether it's a two-year-old or a 90-year-old, in less than 90 seconds. And it's all based on brain science. And it's counterintuitive and it's countercultural, but it's very, very powerful. Mm. Well, I'm hoping that this actually works. What, now, you speak in your book about a, a mediator, but before we get to a right. mediator, what, what exactly is mediation? So the easiest way to think of mediation is um, facilitated negotiation. <laughs> Maybe that's the best way to put it. So people have a problem, they have a conflict, and they need to, and they they get escalated. Or And so now they are, because they are both emotional and upset at each other and angry, maybe so angry they'd rather shoot each other with AK-47s than sit down at the table and talk, 
they have some choices about how they can respond to that conflict. One choice is through coercion, where one person has sufficient power to tell the other person what to do. So that could be a boss over an employee or a parent over a child or a teacher over a student, cop over a citizen. Um, we all know that coercion is a very poor way to resolve conflicts because nobody likes to have their autonomy threatened. Nobody likes to be told what to do. So really the only time that coercion is effective is when there's an emergency and lives or properties at stake. And, and so we need somebody in charge to tell us what to do. You know, if I, if I had a heart attack and I was wheeled into the emergency ward, I don't want the cardiac nurses negotiating with a cardiac surgeon over what to do. You know, I want somebody to make a decision and fast. So that's when coercion power works best. The second choice we have is to go to outside authority. So this, again, could be two kids going to mom or dad, two students going to a teacher, employees going to a boss, or, or in the litigation system, the legal system, parties going to a judge, a jury, or an arbitrator, or an arbitration panel to have somebody make a decision about how this conflict is going to get resolved. And the outside authority is all about decision-making. That Then the third way is mediation. And mediation is very different because in mediation, the parties make the decision to enter into mediation, and they make and they and they at all times maintain the power to decide how and when and if the conflict is going to resolve itself. But they bring in a mediator who's skilled at process and de-escalation and problem solving to guide them through a, a process that allows them to calm down, and then to enter into some kind of problem-solving mode that allows them to then. Re- hopefully resolve whatever differences there are and prevent the problem from arising again. Mediation can take the form of distributive negotiation like shuttle diplomacy where the mediator is taking offers and counteroffers for payment of money back and forth between the parties, or it can be something much more sophisticated in which the mediator is engaging the parties in a process of exploration to understand their conflict better and then to understand what their interests and needs are that need to be satisfied for the conflict to go away. So there's many, many different types of mediation out there, but the idea is that the mediator is not going to make a decision. All the mediator is going to do is help the parties, <laughs> keep them at the table, and help them make the best decision they can make under the circumstances with the information they have available to them, and understand and accept the consequences of their choices at the end of the day. And that, that is, in essence, what mediation is all about. I wish we had mediation amongst all this other stuff that's going on. I mean, it sounds so, well, it sounds so simple just listening to you explain it like that, Doug. But in reality, we don't have we don't have that choice. If I have someone to my door and we have a conflict of interest, there's no mediator at that time to resolve our issues. It's either you might have something in your hand, you may have a gun, you may shoot me. I I don't know, you know. Well, that's correct. That in the in the if there's a situation where there's incipient violence. Uh, obviously, there are. That's when you need some something more coercive to create safety, such as the police. But once the order has been restored and property has been secured and people are safe, they can go to mediation to solve that problem. And I know that in, in Atlanta, for example, there are community mediation centers all over the place. There's lots and lots of resources out there for people to find a mediator is a very low cost. Uh, and there's some very high-end mediators in in the Atlanta metro area who who like I work on you know very complex problems. The problem is not that there aren't mediators available; it's that people don't know what mediation is. So it's kind of like trying to sell toothpaste to a village that doesn't even know what a toothbrush is. And until and, and mediation as a process, it's been around for a long time but really is a professionalized process. It's only been around for 20 or 25 years. And so it's not like people really understand that mediation is available to them as an alternative or as a better way, probably in most cases, than hiring a junkyard lawyer and going to court and, and spending all your wealth on your lawyers to get a decision that you're going to be really unhappy with. Whereas you can spend a, a, a tenth of that money on a mediator and get a result that you can live with. Um, and that's the difference. And it's just that people just—it's just that people are not just aware, are just simply not aware that mediation is an option to them. But there are plenty of mediators out there, and you can always find somebody to help you. I mean, all you need to do is jump on Google and 
Do a quick search and you'll find a lot of listings in every community in the United States. So part of this is just getting people educated to the idea that there are people like me out there who are peacemakers, who are skilled, who, who can help you walk through the process. And and a good mediator like my, such as myself, I always tell people, if you're compromising, if you're giving something up, you're making a big mistake. Because in mediation, there shouldn't be much compromise. What we're looking right. to do is satisfy interests, not compromise positions. Exactly. And that's a but really hard it. thing for people to get around the, to get their heads around. The idea, I, you mean I don't have to give anything up? No, you don't have to give anything up. Right, I can definitely understand that. But does it really? Does mediation really work, Doug? In your opinion, in your line <laughs> of work, does it really work? I've done. I, I personally conducted over two thousand mediations. Wow. Yeah, uh, involving involving. Involving, I mean, here's the kind of range of things that I've done. I've done a 500, a half a billion dollar partnership breakup between four lawyers and a real estate firm that took 65 days. I have mediated between victims and offenders in homicide and rape cases. I've mediated cases in the Catholic clergy, clergy sexual abuse arena where victim survivors confront the church hierarchy and come to resolution. I have mediated, and I've mediated everything in between. Community conflicts, environmental conflicts, um, business disputes of all different kinds, family business conflicts. I've done some high-end divorces. Um, yes, it works, and it's a heck of a lot less expensive than going to lo- going to litigation. Heck of a lot less expensive. A, a, an average three-day jury civil jury trial. I don't know what the cost is in Atlanta, but in California today, if you, if you were to hire a lawyer to take you through a three-day civil jury trial. You know, you're mm-hmm. looking at at least a quarter million dollars in attorney's fees. Minimum. Oh, ouch. Minimum. Oh, you, just, oh you, you took a kidney away from it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it's very, very oh. – and that puts, that puts litigation out of the reach of most people. Now, you can – some lawyers will take a case on a contingency fee basis, but those are very rare, and those are, tend to be personal injury cases where there's insurance on the other end. And 99% of those cases settle anyways. So right. now, you can – I'm sorry. Oh, no. Go ahead, Doug. I was just going to say that, that even, at, even after paying all that money to a lawyer, very few cases go to trial these days. There are very few lawyers right. who have – have have trial experience because most cases settle, but you pay all the money and then you go to mediation. Why not go to mediation first instead of paying all that money? Now, sometimes people aren't ready to mediate and sometimes people get defensive. And I mean, there are reasons why it takes a while to get there. But if you can get, if parties can get into mediation early, they can save themselves a lot of money and a lot of grief. Exactly. Now I'm figuring too, Doug, if they, if the parties don't reach, a deal if they don't come to agreement, isn't there some like a proposal that the mediator has to write out? Well, there. I mean, there are, mediators have various tools that they can use to try to mm-hmm. uh, coax people into settlement. But a mediator really doesn't have any uh, power to tell anybody what to do. So if people don't resolve in mediation, they have they have a choice. They can continue with the conflict. They can, and if it's in litigation, then they continue with the lawsuit and go to trial. And a judge or a jury is going to make a decision. If they're in a private proceeding called arbitration, an arbitrator or an arbitration panel will make a decision, and then they've got a decision. And they can mediate. They can come back to mediation after the decision if they want. So, and that happens a lot. So, um, so people have people have lots of options to them. now if you're not if it's a non-litigated problem it's a like for example you're in a family business and you got a dispute with a brother or a sister or a cousin or something i mean it becomes much more difficult because you either have to decide to stay with the conflict in the business which is obviously going to hurt the business or maybe you have to separate and one person has to leave the business which creates huge problems in and of itself so Oftentimes, people are, are motivated to come into mediation because their alternatives are so awful. And and even mediation, you know, as – I mean, when people are really escalated, they're really emotional. They see mediation being weak and ineffectual, and that works for the other guy, but it'll never work for me, and I don't want to do any of this kumbaya stuff. And the last thing I want to do is sit around the campfire with this guy and talk about, you know, mom always loved you best. And people really put down the process because – they are so escalated, all they want is vengeance. And part of the skill of mediation is helping people overcome that 
to come to the table and start exploring what can be done. And people find people find almost invariably that, that they have the power to resolve their their conflicts with a skilled mediator, and they're extremely satisfied with the process. Even in criminal cases, same same effect. Same oh, effect. Offend, uh, victims are victim, victims are extremely satisfied when they have been able to sit down with their with their offender and talk mm-hmm. about what happened and talk about how to make things right and talk about how to prevent this from happening again. It's it's magical what happens. And as a mediator, I'm blessed to watch these people find peace in their lives. Right, I'm where sure, uh, there was hatred before. Right. And with mediation, of course, it, that, mediation sounds like a fast solution than if I was going to court and have to deal with all the lawsuits because we already know lawsuits, it takes forever, years to even come right. to a complete resolution. That's right. Yeah. Most but, mediations, yeah, most mediations take a day or two, you know, and simpler cases even less than that. So, okay. yes, much, much faster, much faster. So, Doug, tell us about your prison of peace project so this is this is uh been quite that was this has been quite a journey so uh, so the project started in 2009 when i received a phone call from a, a close friend and colleague of mine laurel coffer who's a mediator in los angeles and she said hey you got a second i said yeah let me read you this letter and she's standing at her mailbox and so she reads me this letter written by a woman who was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole for conspiracy to commit murder. We didn't know that at the time, but we learned it later. Um, who is who was, who was incarcerated at, at what was at that time the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, and in California. And she was writing to ask if we would be interested in coming into the prison and teaching a group of life inmates, lifers, to become peacemakers and mediators so they could stop the violence because they were tired of it. And so Laurel read the letter and said, what do you think? And I said, you know, if this is for real, I think we should try this. So we, we spent the next six months learning about prison, prison bureaucracies and ev- eventually got the go-ahead from a woman, uh, the chief deputy warden, who was then the acting warden, Velda Dobson Davis. And uh, in March of 2000, April of 2010, we started training our first 15 women in how to become peacemakers and mediators. And we took them through a 12-week intense curriculum, starting with how to listen. And that's where I brought in our, our, our listening skills of, of uh, how to listen to emotions, how to de-escalate people. Because we realized that when we were teaching these women how to be peacemakers, they were going to step into some really dangerous situations between inmates. And they needed to have tools that would work the first time, every time, without failure. There was no room for error here because of the incipient violence in prison. So... We only intended to teach 15 women as a pilot program and see what happened, but we, all of a sudden we had a waiting list of 800 women who had heard about the training and wanted it. So we decided to keep going, and ultimately in three years uh, we trained up uh, uh, 30 or 40 women who became trainers and started teaching the general population how to do these skills. The prison was repurposed into a men's prison in 2012, so the women were moved out to other women's prisons. And we said we, we would follow them, but we weren't planning on expanding the project at all. We started getting calls from the warden of the old women's prison, who was now the warden of what was now a men's prison. He said, would you please come in and teach the men this stuff, because it was so powerful for the women. And we said, no, we're not getting paid for this. It's all pro bono, and we can't afford to do it anymore. Well, he persisted, and we eventually caved in and started teaching the men. And uh, we spent three years there. Ultimately, we were so successful with the women and in this men's prison that the Department of Corrections gave us uh, some large grants to expand the project into six more prisons in California. So right now we're in nine California prisons, and a colleague of ours came over from Greece. She learned from us, and now she's got the program going in nine prisons in Greece and um, we got interest from about 15 different states right now who all are interested in starting prison of peace in in their prison systems. Um, the I, and we get some we get some fat. We've gotten really incredible results. We've had about I'd say we probably have right now we probably have 600. I'm going to say I'd have to guess 600 people who have been through our training have been released uh, on parole. Zero reports of recidivism or reoffending. As far as we can tell, every every one of our students is doing well. They're in school. They're working. Um, 
I mean, we're hearing amazing stories of how how these basic these peacemaking skills have transformed lives in really profound ways. So today we're working in level four facility. We're at Corcoran State Prison, which is where Charles Manson is housed. In fact, we're working uh, 100 feet from where his cell is, working with wow. guys coming guys coming out of gangs. They're in shackles and they have had extremely violent lives, and they are so um, thrilled with. <laughs> we got <laughs> we got a call from the warden <laughs> um, saying, "What are you guys teaching that keep that makes my inmates want to stay here?" Because they they're going through what's known as this debriefing program where they're getting out of gangs and and they don't want to leave because they don't want to miss our training and if they leave then they'll go to prisons where we're not there and they say no please I want to stay here until I finish this training and the warden's never this is unprecedented and the warden was laughing and said what are you guys doing over there so it was pretty funny but we but these guys even the hardest gangbangers are are learning to be peacemakers and um mediators and they're really really good at it and we i mean we've trained um, one of one of my top mediators uh was the guy who started the Aryan Brotherhood he was the founder of the Aryan Brotherhood and he's never getting out of prison but boy what a powerful peacemaker he is um the woman who started the program uh, who wrote us the mm-hmm. letter got a letter of a letter of cl- of of uh clemency from Governor Brown, and she was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole, but because of prison of peace, she is probably going to get released this fall. Half the women we trained in, in uh, starting in that April 2010 class have been released on parole and are doing great. So it's oh, powerful. That's awesome. That's awesome. Is, it, is it hard for them to get back out there into the real, into the real world? Because most people doubt you when you're coming from prison. Oh, you're not going to change. Right. You're going to be the same way. Because I don't know if I would want to trust someone who had a felony or was a convict in prison. Like I don't know if I want you back in my house. But good that you that you uh, make amends with yourself. I'll tell you, there, with very few exceptions, of the of the of the thousands of inmates that I've trained and worked with over the years, with very few exceptions, there's not one of them I wouldn't have at my dinner table. Yes, oh, they've done heinous acts. There is, there is no doubt they've done heinous things, uh, okay. and they have, they have had extremely troubled lives. Every single one of them has a story to tell that just makes you cry with, with sadness because how they were treated as children that led them to make the really bad choices they made. Um, but at the end of the day, when they have learned the skills that we teach, how to listen, how to de-escalate, how to be, how to create a deep empathic connection, how to help people problem solve, they change. They change dramatically, and they become and, and instead of being as as I say was told the women they were black thorns for about three or four, four weeks, and then all of a sudden into the fifth week of our training these black thorns turned into these beautiful roses, as they began to as they began to open up because because they were learning skills that had never been taught them before about what it means to be a human being. So um, you know obviously. Every human being is different. Every inmate is different. Every everybody has a different path. Not all people change, but I can tell you that the ones that I've worked with uh, have changed, and the ones that have been released have been are doing extremely well on the outside. Oh, well, see now that's that's good. I really give them a round of applause. I'm glad somebody like Charles Manson, if he ever gets out, I'd be like no. No, <laughs> I don't think I don't he will. That. I don't think he will get out. We we talked to the correctional officers about him, and he is um, he's a he's, he's a work unto himself. No, I don't think he'll ever get out. Right, I still couldn't believe that a woman actually was trying to be involved with him. I'm like, are you serious? Like, okay, but each to their own. Well, well we're gonna take a short commercial break, and we're gonna come back with Doug, and we want to talk about a little bit the difference between conversation and listening, and also the secret to de-escalate in our argument or a conflict. So stay tuned. Do not touch that dial. We'll be right back after this. Thought it was over? Not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Blog Talk Talk Radio, baby. In the wake of a disaster, what one thing can you send that will help people the most? A blanket. A tent, a sandbag, a doctor. Actually, 
If you send a monetary donation, you send all these things. Even a small donation can make a big impact and can quickly become exactly what people affected by disaster need most. In the wake of a hurricane, your monetary donation can make a huge difference to those in need. To donate, visit supporthurricanerelief.org. That's supporthurricanerelief.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Music is a bridge between the material and the spiritual. My name is Harvey Lauer, and I'm 82. As a blind person, you have to be aware that nobody can tell you what you can or can't do. You really have to try things. My folks got me a little radio in 1940, and that was the best Christmas present I ever got. When I was 11 years old is when I started to uh, play music, play the piano, and then the accordion, and then the cello. My wife, who was also blind, was a good cook. When she died, that's when I started Meals on Wheels. America, let's do lunch. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Bryce Alba Technician. If you're listening to the replay, make sure to share with your friends and family. I am here with Mr. Douglas E. Noel, who is a full-time internationally recognized mediator and peacemaker, specializing in difficult, complex, and intractable conflicts. And we have been discussing a little bit on how de-escalate and as well as mediation. And he has a book, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less, which sounds impossible, but it it can be done. First, I would love to discuss, Doug, Will, what is the fastest way to de-escalate an argument or conflict? What's the true secret? The true secret takes three things. You have to do three things. Step number one is ignore the words for the next 90 seconds. The words are just noise that have no meaning, and you're just going to completely ignore what people are saying. They can be screaming at you, cussing you out disrespecting you. It doesn't matter. Just ignore what they're saying. It's not important. Second step, guess at what you think they're experiencing right now emotionally. What are their feelings? Obviously anger, maybe rage, frustration, fear, anxiety. Just guess. And then the third step, and this is the secret sauce, is reflect back what you think that person is feeling with a very simple use statement. Oh, you are really angry right now. You're really frustrated. You don't feel like you're being heard. You feel a lot of sadness and grief. You don't feel like you're being supported. And you're just really pissed off. And then stop and watch what happens. You're going to look for four involuntary unconscious reactions that will tell you whether or not you've got them de-escalated. Number one, you're going to get a nod of the head up and down, Number two, you're going to get a fairly sharp verbal response like, exactly, yeah, I'm really pissed off, something like that. You're going to get a dropping of the shoulders, and you're going to hear or see a a sigh of relief, an exhalation. Those are all involuntary and preconscious. The person doesn't even know that he or she is doing that. That tells you that you're on the right track, And and they will immediately start to settle in. I mean, within less than 90 seconds. And the reason for this is has been established by neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman in a very in in his 2007 study uh, of this, these processes, watching what happens to escalated brains when this technique called affect labeling is used on them. And basically, what Lieberman has shown us is that when our brains become highly emotional, the emotional centers of our brain are lit up like rockets going off. Our ability to process those emotions goes away because our prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our brain, the processing part of our brain, basically shuts down. And so now all these emotions are firing off, and we become reactive. And all we do is rely on old programming, and we will do whatever we programmed ourselves or whatever environment programmed us to do from many years before. And we'll go off on people and be crazy stupid. All right, what what he shows is that if we, as a listener, label the emotions that that person is having by simply reflecting back what the feelings are, putting feelings into words, then we are literally lending our prefrontal cortex to that speaker, that person who's really angry, 
and it allows them at a very deep level in their brain to process the emotional experience they're having, and it immediately quiets down the emotional centers of the brain. Their prefrontal cortex comes back online, and you can have a calm conversation with them about whatever it is that got them upset. takes about 40, typically right around 45 seconds. I say 90 seconds on the outside. But we are working with the neurophysiology of the human brain when we do this. And that's why it's so effective, and that's why it works first time every time. And, of course, we've got years and years of experience um, teaching lifers how to do this in maximum security prisons where they've stopped gang riots and homicides and all kinds of stuff every single time using using these skills. And I've taught it to thousands of people from middle school teachers and high school teachers to judges, lawyers, therapists, uh, and just ordinary people, um, people just living everyday lives learning how to simply listen for the emotions it becomes it's what's challenging for people is one thinking that i need to tell somebody else what they're feeling because don't they know what they're feeling and the answer is no they don't they really can't process what they're doing two getting away from i statements so one thing you wouldn't say is what i think you're feeling is anger no i statements here it's got to be you statements because when it's you, it's objective, and you're, listen, you're, you're talking from the speaker's frame of reference. When you use an I statement, you're subjective, and you're moving their train onto your track. And, and the science shows and common sense shows that when you use an I statement and listening to somebody, all you do is get them more angry. So no I okay. statement and no questions. Are you angry? No questions. If you're wrong, if you guessed wrong, it's not a big deal. Your speaker will immediately correct correct you. Oh, you're really angry. No, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. Oh, you're really frustrated. Yeah, I'm frustrated. They will, the speaker will always correct you. You simply reflect and you're good to go. So you don't have to worry about whether or not you get it right or not. You'll always get corrected. And you and once you do the correction, then you'll see the de-escalation. Why, this works on two-year-olds. You, you can stop okay. a two-year-old tantrum in 30 seconds using these, using these skills. Oh, wow. That's something that parents need to know. Definitely make sure parents Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And that's another thing. I, I don't like when people ask, oh, are, um, when they state, like, are you really upset? Like, you look upset. Like, don't tell me I look upset because now I'm probably be upset because now you're referencing. That's right. But that if I, I am said, upset. right. Like you are really angry. You're really upset right now. You don't you're know really, upset. really upset. Right. And I know you, yeah, state, you, know, you and you state that in your and book. You say you right. That, you're right. I'm really upset, and you and you feel <laughs> no, like nobody's man. listening to you, and no, and you're feeling disrespected, and nobody's supporting you, and you're a little sad because you feel a little bit all by yourself. Right, and you state that in your book with a scenario between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. He was telling her, "You right. know, you're frustrated," and I think you also stated the fact that. It doesn't matter. I I think basically to, to sum it up short, it doesn't matter if your characteristics, if you're lazy or not. It's how you can mediate a situation. So if you're a lazy person, right. we have lazy people, the, the procrastinators and everything. Sure. It's cool on how you procrastinate. And I also find it very interesting in, in this book as well on how to dip, listening to a bully like we really want right. to. I never want to listen to my bullies. Probably, <laughs> that probably would have helped me back out. Years ago, if I could have really sat down and asked them, why do you like picking on me so much? Maybe we could have got down to the bottom of it. But um, all jokes set aside, that would probably definitely help with the way things are handled in school. We we still have bullying going on, and it's going oh, through cyberbullying. Cyber so just before we get to any other questions, what is your suggestions for the children who have to deal with this? At school, how should they approach it? Should they walk up to their bully and say, hey, how you doing? Can we sit down for a minute? I mean, I don't know how, how that would turn out. Well, um, if the children, if, 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 a, if, a, if a child is, has been taught how to manage that by somebody with skills, it would probably turn out really well. If the child's not skilled, then I would never say approach a bully and try to sit down and talk things out because it's only going to get worse. So if children are trained in in this and they are being approached by somebody who wants to use power or force or be intimidating, um, they can completely disarm that person verbally by using these skills. 
you're really you. I mean, the bully's coming up on him. A big twelve-year-old's coming up on an eight-year-old. And the eight-year-old can just look up and say, you know, you're looking, you're looking really angry right now. You're looking frustrated. You look like you want to really punch somebody. And the bully will say something like, yeah, I want to punch you. And said, yeah, you really want to punch me. You you really want to take it out on me. And you're really sad because there's nobody that's really listening to you, and you feel really frustrated about that. That just takes. And what, what? How do you respond to that? I mean, that eight-year-old is working on that twelve-year-old's brain. That twelve-year-old has no control over what's going to happen next. And what's going to happen next is that that twelve-year-old's brain is going to de-escalate, and the twelve-year-old well, has no conscious control over that, and no back. Well, and generally, will back off. Now, I don't suggest this. I mean, I'm, I, I, right. I know it works, but I and I would teach it as a te- as a defusing technique for children. But I would also say, you know, when, whenever possible, avoid confrontation. But if you're backed into a corner and you don't have martial arts training and you've got to defuse somebody, this is the way you would do it. And it, and oh, it will okay. work. Okay. It sounds like a little bit of psychology. Now, why is that so simple to describe? You're, you're saying it so perfectly, but it's so hard to do in the heat of conflict because as adults, we know things can get heated up. You, you think in one right. way, but then it escalates this way. Well, the, first of all, this is a skill. It's like riding a bicycle. Okay. And until you until you practiced it in low risk social environments, in low risk situations, until you really practice it and convince yourself that it's really going to work, you're not going to use it in in a in a volatile situation. It's only after you've practiced it for a while and you and you gain confidence that hey, this really does work and this is really pretty amazing that you'll that you'll be able to use it when you're faced with somebody who's really angry or upset. And so that's why I tell people, when you start practicing these skills, don't don't jump into an argument right away. Go try it on your Starbucks barista. Hey, you're really happy this morning. Hey, you look really relaxed. Hey, you look like you're really rested. And watch watch the reaction. And they'll they'll light up and start getting chatty with you and you say, Well that was strange. And then you'll do it again to somebody else. Hey, you look really happy today. Hey, you look like you're having a great day. And uh, they'll light up and get really chatty with you and say, well, two times in a row, that's really weird. And eventually, after you've practiced it like this, just really throw away labeling somebody's feelings, guessing at their feelings and labeling them to strangers or to people you don't know very well, you're gonna, you'll, you'll have enough of, a, of an experiential uh, database to recognize that this stuff really works. And so when you see somebody who's really getting escalated, you say, hey, man, you're really angry right now. You're really angry, you're frustrated, and go through the layers, as I talk about in the book, and you will see for yourself that it's like magic. It calms people down instantly. And then once you've had that experience a couple of times, then you'll say, this is the only way to be. And so when anybody gets upset or angry or starts being disrespectful or starts yelling at you, you immediately go into this mode because you've practiced it enough that it's become second nature. And then, and then things start changing for you. The first thing you'll notice is that people don't get angry around you anymore. <laughs> they just right. people just don't get pissed off. The, other, the the second thing you'll notice is that when you get into this place where you're only listening to emotions and reflecting back the emotions, is you become egoless. It's like you're you're in a bubble of energy that nothing can penetrate. You feel totally safe in there, and it doesn't matter what they say. It just it's you're impervious it, to anything that they say. Nothing will touch you. And you, you end up in a place of transcendence where you are actually sort of one with this person in a way. And you're able to just flow with them wherever they go. And it's, it, it's really an, a remarkable feeling. And everybody experiences it. This, that's part of the process of what happens here. And then the third thing that happens, which is really cool, is that over a period of time of practicing this, you become able to de-escalate yourself. You'll be able to say, hey, I'm really angry right now. I'm really frustrated. And so you learn emotional intelligence this way. This is how you learn and develop emotional intelligence so you can modulate your own emotional experience. And we've seen hundreds of people grow emotionally by doing these skills and then learning how to do them on themselves just with practice. And all of a sudden, they're living really peaceful, quiet, happy lives. And nothing bothers them anymore. Um, and Doug, I noticed you mentioned to just pay attention only to the emotions. So why do you tell people just to ignore the words? 
that's that's kind of hard to do because a lot of people don't do that. That'd be the first thing right. before the emotions even come. You hear the words. Right. Well, we're trained from the time that we start to speak. We're we're actually trained from birth to start. Our brains are trying to make sense of the voc- vocabulary. We are we are hardwired. Our brains are hardwired to learn language. And one of the big tasks, I mean, a baby has many, many tasks that it has to accomplish. But one of them is to start making making sense of and connecting words with ideas and that sort of thing. So we learn very, very young that words contain meaning. Um, and we're taught in school that words have meaning. And we are taught that we are rational. Well, we do have some ability to be rational, but really we're emotional. Human beings are 98% emotional and 2% rational. There's a whole concept called bounded rationality. We are only rational under certain limited conditions. The rest of the time, we're completely emotional. Every decision we make is an emotional decision. You can't even be rational without being emotional first because emotions tell us what to pay attention to. So how would you even know to use logic or problem solving on a, on an issue in front of you unless you had some emotion that told you that that was a problem that had to be dealt with in the first place? We don't know this stuff. We're, we're taught exactly the opposite. It goes all the way back to the Greeks. So we've been taught that there's a privilege of rationality, and to be anything other than rational is to be less than human. That's just totally wrong, and it's a total myth. So part of the reason why we struggle with thinking about Listening to somebody's emotions and reflecting them back is because we've been acculturated to the idea that emotions are bad, they're negative, they're harmful, they're scary, they're not controllable. All myth, all wrong, all scientifically unsupported. But that's the culture that we've grown up in because because the science culture is not caught up with the science. And the science tells us exactly the opposite. And I'm one of the first people out there to take these ideas out of the neuroscience and put them into practical, effective use as a peacemaker. And where else could it be more powerful than in dealing with human conflict? Maybe how you just spoke on neuroscience. Just last month, one of my mentors, who is an entrepreneur, he was speaking on the four methods. Neuroscience says anyone can use to make themselves happier instantly for one you'll ask yourself, what am I grateful for? Two, right. you'll, label, you'll label these negative feelings. You'll choose words wisely. Um, once you label it, you can control it. Example, instead right. of just saying, I'm, I'm livid, maybe you could say, um, instead of saying, I'm livid, or maybe you could say, I'm annoyed. And then you'll make a decision which helps reduce anxiety. It helps to set goals. Not a perfect right. decision, just decide, making a decision, you know, skyrockets the amount of um, do- uh, dopamine you receive, basically. Correct. And, and, Correct. and the fourth thing would be to touch people, which we know right. physical touch, physical touch translates that love, touch, touch and release oxytocin. That oxytocin. It releases yeah. oxytocin. Yeah, yeah, it releases oxytocin, which, and which is a pair bonding chemical. I am a right. hugging person. So I was glad to find out the information. <laughs> right. So when right. I give so, people a hug, I'm gonna be like, you know what? I am releasing the oxygen. So let me touch you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So you, and, and, and all of those. That's right. All of those things that you've been talking about are well founded in 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 science. It tells us why how we can consciously change ourselves if we wish to. The problem right. is that the information is not being is not being put out there. And we are still, for example, in school, we are still using 19th century technologies to teach kids in the 21st century. And, you know, it worked for the 19th century, but it doesn't work so well for the 21st century. We should be teaching children these skills early on. And And so that means we have to teach teachers and we have to teach parents how to do all this stuff. We have to start getting some role models out there of people who know what they're doing. And, and as you said at the top of the show, we live in a really uncivil, angry world, and we don't have any role models out there right now. All we, We've got we horrible role models for doing this we sort do. of thing. So, yeah. so my, mission, my mission is to teach people how to do this, to calm each other down, and we're going to do this from, from the bottom up, and together we can calm an angry world. We can teach our children these skills. We can teach ourselves these skills. It's a simple matter of just reading the book, 
maybe taking my online video course and just taking some time, not a lot of time, but taking some time to say, I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to deal with angry people anymore. I don't want to be upset. I want the skills that are going to make me have a, a calm, peaceful, not not that there are any challenges or conflicts, but how we respond to them will be calm and peaceful, as opposed to getting into drama and chaos. And it's possible. It's possible for every human being to be this way if you take the time to learn the skills. And the skills are not hard to learn, not hard to learn at all. just takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of willpower to, to make it part of your daily practice for a couple of weeks until it becomes a habit. And then you're good. And your life changes in really dramatic, powerful ways. I promise it sounds like you're just speaking right off from my affirmation calls in the morning. Uh, Doug, how do you have a calm conversation with the politically polarized? The first thing I do is de-escalate them. (laughs) So using the skills of listening to their emotions and reflecting back. Then I get them calmed down. Um, A couple of things that are really important. If you're going to have a calm conversation with somebody who has radically different political beliefs than you do, in fact, so radical that they're repugnant to you, um, you have to be willing to listen. And you have to be in a place where you don't need to be validated yourself. And you have to be willing to validate this person as a human being, not their beliefs, but them as a human being. And if you can get yourself in that place with some patience, then you can do a lot of good. So, And, and you only have to ask three really simple questions to to get going in this. The first the first question I always want to ask people who have radically different beliefs than I do is a very simple question. So tell me what it is in your life experience that brought you to the beliefs that you have today. What is it in your life that caused you to have these beliefs? Most people have never thought about that before. How did I come to these beliefs? And so by simply asking them to reflect on how did they, what in life led them to where they are? You can get some amazing stories. It'll go all the way back to their grandparents, and they'll talk about the whole, their whole arc of life, and, and it'll, they will be reflecting and sort of trying to figure it out themselves, and you'll listen, and you'll find out just by asking that question that you have far more in common with this person than you have than there are differences. Then the second question I might ask is something like, well, how do your beliefs help you? How do they guide your decision-making, and how do they guide, guide how you behave in everyday life? How are they useful to you? Because that's what beliefs are. Beliefs are simply heuristics that guide us in everyday decisions so we don't have to use a lot of brain power to figure out what to do. We just have a belief that tells us what to believe and what to listen to and what not to listen to. Our beliefs tell us what, what we're going to listen to, and if it's not in that framework, then it does not exist. It must be fake news because it doesn't exist. But if I ask people, how did your belief help you, assist you in what you do every day? People have never thought about that. And so they've got to think about, it. hmm, how do my beliefs help me? And that, again, opens up a very rich conversation around how they, how they look at the world. And then the last question I might ask would be something like, all right, not everybody believes the way you do. How do you deal with people who have different belief structures? How do you respond to that? And how should, what kind of a society should we have? Should we have a society where there should only be one set of beliefs that everybody adheres to? Or, or should we have a society where there are many different beliefs, many of which are contradictory? And if so, how should that society function? Now, notice that in all three of these questions, I never once asked them what their beliefs were. I never once challenged their beliefs. I never once told them they were wrong. I didn't try to persuade or argue with them. What I tried to do is, is get them to start talking about how their beliefs came about, and then how their beliefs guide them and think about their beliefs in the context of their daily lives. And if you have that kind of conversation with the politically polarized, you're going to learn a lot, they're going to learn a lot, and you're going to find a lot of common ground. But if I try to tell somebody who has a strongly held belief that they're wrong, that here are the facts. Look at the facts, man. Here are the facts. You, there is, there is cl- human-caused global warming. How can you deny the science? If I tell that to somebody who's a climate change denier, then we know from neuroscience, from neuroscientific studies, in fact, Drew Western at Emory in in Atlanta uh, did this study some years ago, that that when you tell somebody with deeply entrenched beliefs, a partisan, and you give them information that is true but contradictory to their belief structures, they actually – dopamine is released in the brain to entrench 
their beliefs even deeper into their brain. In other words, they are rewarding themselves for holding on to their belief. They become more stubborn, and it becomes impossible to change that belief. You can never convince somebody with a strong belief of the error of their ways by showing them empirical evidence that's true but contradictory to their belief structure. It just Our brains are not wired that way. And um, so trying to argue with somebody and show them the error of their ways is, is counterproductive and won't work. I mean, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of work to show somebody. I just you got you have to let those kind right there find their own way because everybody's not going to be on the same page. Everybody's not going to follow your lead. Um, and I and I don't yeah, and I don't want them to follow my lead, but I do want to have a conversation with them. Right, a good civilized. And I want to validate them because if right. they feel validated. They're not going to get escalated, and there's a small chance that if they feel validated, they they might be will, willing to listen to my perspective and my answers to those questions. Right. They might I, I find I find most people when you're having a conversation with them, it's not all about you. It's more about them. You have to find kind of ways to focus on them a little bit before you blast into about yourself. Got to earn your turn. That's what right. that's what we tell our inmates. Earn your turn. And that means you have to be willing to listen before you speak. You need to listen. You need to listen before you have the right to be listened to. And that's difficult for people because we all go around in the world wanting to be validated. We want to be listened to. We're like little children in some ways. Me, 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 me. And so there's this deep need to be listened to because we've never been listened to ourselves. And so when I ask people, no, listen to the other person first, be an adult. That's, that's hard for people to grab that. But when they do and they get it, then things start to change really radically for the good. Mm-hmm. Now, Doug, are you doing another book? Do you have another one coming out? Along I don't know. Business? This book just was released last week, so it's been a process. Um, we'll see how this book does, and if there's interest, then I think the next book is going to be on problem solving. So what do you do after you've de-escalated? Now what do you do? And there's a whole range of things you can do. And so maybe maybe the book will be on problem solving. Or maybe it'll be another book on de-escalation, but it, more focused. This is sort of a general broad overview of the book, but I could take de-escalation into all different kinds of situations and maybe maybe give more directions on how to deal with more specific stuff. I don't know. Well, I'll just have to see. I mean, a lot of it has to do with how well everybody resonates with this book. And if this book takes off and it's a bestseller and people really like it, then Obviously, there's a craving for more information, and I'll put it out there. And if there isn't, then there isn't. Um, so we'll just have to see. But I do think that we, each of us has the power, if we want it, to calm our angry world if we simply learn these basic skills. And it won't take a lot of people, just like it didn't take very many inmates to calm down prisons. It only take, took a 100 inmates to calm a prison of 4,000 people and get the place calmed down. Um, it's not going to take very many of us to use these skills to calm our families, calm our communities, calm our faith, faith communities, and and at the bottom start making things calmer, which will then resonate to the top into our political leaders, and they'll begin to realize that at some point that you know what they're doing is not advantageous to to to, right. to the to the country. Well, Doug, I really do appreciate you for being here. It was so exciting. Although we're out of time right now, people, but please make sure you pick up Douglas E. Noel's book, The Escalate How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. It's very helpful. It's not just a self-help book, but it really takes you into the structure of things and really breaking down the nitty-gritty. But from my, as my friend Mary Ellen Signovich would say, the truth of the day, allow the spirit of competition to energize and motivate you. Competition can energize you because it helps you stay focused on your goals. You become inspired to make productive use of your time as your skills and talents are being pinted against a, of another. Your determination to utilize every opportunity creates enthusiasm as you focus on your goals. Through competition, you recognize how relaxation aids you to make full use of all your intellectual and physical ability. Today, utilize the spirit of competition when it comes your way, even if you are only competing with yourself. Enjoy the day, everyone, and thank you for listening. This is Technicia Day. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. 
Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com.